Would you turn to Hebrews chapter 5 with me? Hebrews chapter 5, if you'd like to use the Bible provided for you there, you'll find our text on page 1003, 1003 of that Bible. Hebrews chapter 5, worship is often an expression of contrast. Where there is in a moment of time incredible praise of God, like Ubalate Deo, praise to the Lord, give praise to God. And then also there's worship which is expressed in deep warning, seriousness, evaluation of our relationship with the Lord. Book of Hebrews. Is just like that. Book of Hebrews is just like what we have experienced and what we're about to see in God's Word. It is a book that is filled with celebration to God, celebration for His great and wonderful mercy through Jesus Christ, who is our exalted high priest, who is our Savior, our Lord, our coming King. And it's filled with celebration. But also, the book of Hebrews is given to us with words of warning, from jubilation to warning. And that is exactly what we will experience now as we read in the book of Hebrews, beginning in chapter 5, verse 11. We go from incredible thanksgiving about our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, to a warning to make sure that he truly is our high priest and that we not Turn back from him, which would only bring the destruction of our souls. And so here is God's word as we open it this morning and read it together. And by God's grace, with his help, I'll try to share this with you. If you would, if you're able, please stand with me. Beginning in verse 11, if you're able to stand for a moment or two, please. Chapter 5, verse 11. The Bible says about this. We have much to say, this here referring to the high priesthood of Jesus Christ, like the great Melchizedek in the previous passage. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since some of you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted of the goodness of the Word of God and of the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. 
to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to, for those sake to, who cultivated it, it receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated, please. One morning, two men got up early go to a day of fishing and they went to their favorite spot which was on a nearby river and they went upstream to that favorite spot put down anchor and began to enjoy a time of fishing and also really maybe the reason for their fishing some drinking and so after they had popped more than one or two tops they, in that summer sun, not only became intoxicated, they became very sleepy. And before you knew it, they were, they were sound asleep in that boat, that fishing boat. While they were asleep, though, the current, which was pushing against that boat, drew up the anchor from the bottom of the riverbed. And the boat slowly began to drift downstream. It picked up speed, but the men in that alcoholic slumber knew nothing about it. They continued to drift downstream, greater and greater speed as the current got them. And before long, people on the shore saw what was happening, that this boat was drifting faster and faster with the current to the falls, which was just down the river. And people started lining the banks of the river, crying out, crying out to wake these men up, screaming at the top of their lungs. And finally, yes, one of the men groggily looked over the top of the boat, saw what was about to happen, terrified, dragged in the anchor, cast it out again, cast out a reserve anchor that was on the boat, and just a few feet from the falls, the boat was anchored, and the men's lives were saved. Now, it wasn't very polite of those people to waken those men from one of the best sleeps they'd ever known. How, how rude, how impolite. We'd say, absolutely not. I don't think the two men felt that way to you. They were absolutely delighted that someone would wake them up from their drifting to destruction. And that is exactly what this passage is about this morning. It is a call by this writer. It is a call by the Holy Spirit to wake up. People, people in the church, 
or asleep. They're not growing up. They're not going on. They are in reality drifting backward, drifting away from Christ to destruction. It's a wake-up call before destruction. And so you can see, yes, we worship Jubilate Deo. But we also need to make sure of our heart's relationship to Jesus Christ. Amen? And that's what the writer is doing here. He's giving, let's just dive right in. He's giving, first of all, an evaluation of immaturity in the faith. He's, he's talking to people about the fact that some of them will not grow up and will not go on in their faith. As a matter of fact, speaking primarily to Jewish professors of faith in Messiah, he's speaking to people who are actually thinking about or starting to turn back to the way they knew before, to the religion they had known before, rather than to truly press on and follow Christ. They don't recognize the situation they are in, and that's the reason this passage is written. Not just for them, but for us. It's an evaluation of immaturity in the faith. And look at verse 11. The writer says, About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. The writer's speaking here personally to them. He's speaking pastorally. He's speaking like a spiritual physician. <laughs> like a soul doctor. <laughs> Notice here, he, he identifies the problem. What is the problem? As he speaks to them like a doctor to their souls, what's the problem? He says, I desire to share more with you. He said, I want to talk more about Jesus as our high priest. I want to tell you more about the glorious truths of how he is a high priest to us. And he will do that a little later on in the book. But he says, right now, I can't talk to you about this. Because you are dull of hearing. You are dull of hearing. That's the problem. Now it's interesting, this word dull here. You might want to mark it in your Bible. You know what it means? It means literally no push. No push. It means sluggish. It means unwilling to work. Unwilling to be serious. He is saying here, your life is one of spiritual dullness. There's no push to your spiritual life. You're not going forward. You're not even standing still. You're going backward. You're dull. There's no push in your life. And he says, now here's the symptoms. That's the problem. Then he says, now here's the symptoms of this. Look at verse number 12. He says, here's the symptoms of what's going on. He says, for by this time you ought to be teachers... And you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. Now what is he saying here? By this time you ought to be teachers. He says there's no progress in your life. Some of you have been coming to church, he says, for months and years and years. But there's no progress in your life. He says you ought to be teachers. And he doesn't mean a pastor here. He doesn't even mean teaching a class. The word teacher here means a discipler. 
By this time, you ought to be discipling other people, which is the goal of every Christian. The goal of every Christian life is to make other Christians, is to disciple others. And he says, by this time, you ought to be doing this. You ought to be disciplers. But the reality is you're not spiritual disciplers. You are in spiritual diapers. Look at verse 12. You ought to be teachers, but you're not ready. You need milk, not solid food. Everyone who lives on milk, verse 13, is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Now notice he says you need someone to teach you the basic principles. You know, see that word basic principles? It literally means the ABCs. He says, it's, it's, you ought to be in spiritual college. You ought to be reproducing yourself, but literally you are like someone who needs to be taught your ABCs all over again. As a matter of fact, he says, you're not just needing your ABCs. It's like you're spiritual babies. You need milk and not meat. He says, I can't talk to you about Melchizedek. I can't talk to you further about Jesus as your great high priest because you're not ready for it. You're going the other direction. You need milk and not meat. Paul uses this, these same words to talk to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 2, he says, I want to address you as spiritual, but I can't. He says, I have to talk to you as babes. You need milk and not solid food. Now, the writer here is speaking personally. You can hear it in his, in his voice. And he's speaking pastorally. He, he's talking to them as a pastor. And he says, this is the problem. He identifies the problem. Then he identifies the symptoms. And he says, here is what the goal should be in your life. He identifies the goal. This is what it should be. What is the goal for a disciple? What is the goal for a disciple of Jesus? What does disciple mean? Do you know? Disciple means literally a learner. A disciple is a learner of Jesus, a learner from Jesus. So what is the goal of a disciple? What's the goal of a learner? Well, the goal is not enlightenment. It's not just more head knowledge. That's not the goal. You see, some people think that the goal of being a Christian, to being a disciple, a learner, is just to know more facts. That is not what the Bible teaches at all. Yes, we are to learn more about the facts of our faith. Yes, we are to learn more doctrine. But that is not the goal of being a disciple of Jesus. The goal of a disciple of Jesus is the goal of maturity, which means discernment. Look at verse 4, here, 14. Here's the goal. Verse 14. Solid food is for the mature, the spiritual grown-ups. For those who have their powers of discernment, that is their mind, the working of their mind, has been trained by constant practice to distinguish 
good from evil. The goal of being a follower of Jesus, a learner of Jesus, is maturity that is expressed in spiritual discernment. What is discernment? Discernment is not the same as education. Discernment is not the same as knowledge. What is discernment? Discernment is the wise application of truth. That's what discernment is. Discernment is the wise application by, of, by the truth. And I want you to notice now in verse 14, discernment only grows not by more Bible studies. Discernment only grows not by coming to church more often. Those things can help with discernment. But discernment really grows by what? Practice. Discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. What is it that discernment does? True discernment produces a healthy moral compass. That is the goal of a mature follower in Jesus Christ. The goal of Christ in us is that we might have his mind. Not that we're omniscient. But that we have by his Holy Spirit through the understanding of his truth and our powers of thinking being trained by constant practice that we become people who have a moral compass of truth. And it affects the way we do all of life. The way we conduct our very life is because of discernment. There is a healthy moral compass in us. And friends, that is what Jesus died on the cross and rose again to produce in you and me. He died on the cross and rose again, not just to get some people into heaven who don't care anything about how they live on this earth. He came and died and rose again that by the Holy Spirit we might be born again. And a work would start in us so that in life on this planet we would know the reality of God. We would become more different, not thinking we're better than others, but we'll become a guide. We'll become an influence on others. This is what Jesus died to give. And these people don't have it. As a matter of fact, they don't have it. They're not even interested in it. They could care less about that. They want to know some stuff. They want to learn some stuff. Tell us more about Melchizedek. Tell us more about those incredible truths. But not interested in pressing into Christ, going on in Christ, growing up in Christ, discipling others, not interested. Well, this brings us to a sila moment, if I might. Sila, you see that word, and you know what it means? It means 
Stop, pause, think about this, meditate on this. It's in the Psalms. Don't, don't just go on. So some of you here, this is a Sila moment. Don't think about that lunch that you're wanting already. Don't think about how fast you're going to get out of here to beat the Methodist to the restaurant. <laughs> like a drag race sometimes around here. Stop. Consider this. What is the goal of knowing biblical truth? What is the goal of knowing biblical truth? Let me share these things with you. Number one, learning is for sharing. Learning is for sharing. Verse 12, it's to become disciplers. Teachers of others. It's not just to store it up and store it up and store it up. But it's to share. You see, if you don't let out what God is putting into you, you know what you become? I call people like that a Dead Sea saint. You know why they call the Dead Sea dead? Because it's dead. Why is it dead? It takes in the Jordan River, takes in the Jordan River, takes in the Jordan River and gives nothing to pass on. Evaporates, evaporates, evaporates. It's just dead. But that's not the way a Christian life is to be. It's to be about sharing all the way to the end. Yesterday, my wife and I went over to Crossville for the funeral of Vernita Willie. Wife of the founding pastor of this church. Her and her husband, seven others, founded this church 58 years ago, 57 years ago, the Bible study started. You know what? She had a massive stroke two weeks ago. But up until the very morning of the day she had the stroke, that 79-year-old lady was discipling boys and girls in Sunday school. And she'd done that for over 65 years. All the way. She didn't think, you know, I served those years. She didn't think, you know, I gave and did my time, let someone else know. She thought, I have gotten all these years that the Lord has taught me things. I've got to pass it on to the next generation. That's the goal of learning, of knowing biblical truth, is sharing it with others. Number two, the goal of learning is for living. The goal of learning is for living. Christianity is not just a faith to believe. Christianity is a life to be lived. Christianity is not just a faith that you believe certain things. Christianity is a life to be lived. Jesus said, I have come that you might have what? Life. And more abundant. Friends, listen. Right doctrine has its place. I can't say much about my 31 years of ministry here at West Park. And people can, well, 
they can challenge me of many failures, and there have been many. But I do not believe I can be challenged about whether I have tried my best to teach the right doctrine of the Word of God. To be faithful to the Scriptures. And I say that with glory to God and praise to God. But let me tell you something. What's the goal of my teaching right doctrine? What's the goal of me learning right doctrine? The goal of right doctrine is right living. Right practice. Orthodoxy, right doctrine, is for the purpose of orthopraxy, right practice. And my friends, it is a very dangerous time in a person's life when they separate their learning from their living. Paul says the end of the commandment You want to say, you want to sum it up, everything God's got to teach? No matter how deep you go in the Word, he says, this is the end of it all. It is the end of faith. Faith. True faith that produces love. Learning is for sharing. Learning is for living. Learning is for growing. Growing in the true knowledge of Christ. That's growth. 2 Peter 5, 2 Peter 3, 18. But grow in grace and in the knowledge about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Is that what your Bible says? If it says that, let's get you another Bible. Grow in grace and in the knowledge of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, listen. You can know the book. And have no knowledge of the author. And this book was written not so you'd know the book itself, first of all. But through it, you'd know the author of the book. Grow in grace and in the experiential knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Here's a question. How do you know if you're growing in Christ? How do you know if you're mature? How do you know? You know, some people get beat down by this. I don't think I'm mature. I haven't had that class. I haven't studied this. I've never studied church history. I've never studied Greek. I've never studied systematic theology. I've never studied biblical interpretation. I I, I just don't know if I'm mature. How could I ever be mature? I don't have much of an education. Oh, my friend, don't let that thinking beat you down. I can tell you how you can know if you're mature or not. All you have to do is look in the maturity mirror. You say, the maturity mirror? Where would I find the maturity mirror? This mirror right here. What does maturity look like? This is what maturity looks like. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's maturity. If, not perfectly, of course, 
But if you see those qualities in your life, if you look like that, then you're mature. And now let me tell you this. If you don't look like that, you're not mature. I don't care how much you know about the grace of God. If you're not a gracious person, you're not mature. I don't care how many Bible studies you attend. If you're not a nice person, you're not mature. I don't care what you know about prophecy. I don't care what you know about dispensationalism. I don't care what you know about supralapsarianism, infralapsarianism, or the hypostatic union of the dual natures of Christ. Be nice. (laughs) Be nice. My friends, listen. What is going to change this world and what will change your neighborhood and what will change your office and what will change your marriage and what will change your life is the living reality of Jesus Christ. These qualities, the knowledge of Christ, Christ in you. You say, well, I don't know if I'm mature. What should I do? Can I answer that? Ask someone who loves you enough not to lie to you. Just ask them and get ready. And then ask God because God wants these qualities in you more than you could ever want them. And dear friend, this is maturity. This is maturity. Now he's evaluating their immaturity in the faith. And he's exhorting them to go on to maturity in the faith. That's where chapter 6 just continues. The, he just continues it here. Go on, he says. Look at verses 1 and 2. Therefore, let us leave. Let's leave these elementary doctrines of the Messiah, of Christ. Let's go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. Now, what is he doing here? He's, he's encouraging them to go on, and he's including himself. He says, let's do this together. Let us go on. And he says, in order to do this, We must leave. We've got to leave these elementary doctrines. That doesn't mean that you don't believe what you know in your earliest days. But these elementary doctrines are the ABCs of the Messiah. The elementary doctrines of Christ. The elementary doctrines of Messiah. Remember, he's, he's speaking to Jewish professors. People who profess faith. They're Jewish. And they know some elementary things about Messiah. Even the Old Covenant taught these things. What did they know? Well, they knew these elementary ABCs. And he mentions six of them. And he puts them in three couplets, three three unions. He says, go on from repentance, from dead works and faith toward God. That was the message of the prophets. Repent, repent. That was the message of John the Baptist. Repent. Repent of this works righteousness. Repent of these dead works. Go on. Have faith. But move on from these elementary principles. 
that you learned even as a Jewish person. Number two, these elementary principles about instructions about washings and laying on of hands. These were Jewish practices, baptisms, ritual cleansings. Laying on of hands which were taught throughout the Old Testament scriptures as we would call them. They were ceremonial in nature. Ceremonial washings. Ceremonial laying on of hands. These are Judaistic practices of the Old Covenant. But he says move on because Jesus is the reality. Don't get stuck in the shadows. He says move on. Verse 2 from just only knowing about the resurrection from the dead and eternal judgment. These two definitely go together. And we're taught to the Jewish people. There's going to be a resurrection from the dead. And there's going to come a judgment. But again he says. Move on. Don't just say that's enough that we know these things. And oh, this message of Jesus, this message of him being the son of God and the only way. I don't know. I think I can just go back to those elementary things I learned under the law. No, he says, move on. Verse 3, he says, and this we will do if God permits. He pledges participation on this journey. I will make this journey with you. I will lead you on, he is saying. But you've got to go on. It can only be done by God's help. Maturity can only come from the master, right? With God's help, let's move on. But now he poses a question. What about those people who won't make the journey? What about those people who decide to turn back? What about those people who say, you know, I, I like this basic Christianity stuff I've been learning and experiencing, but it's just not, it's not for me. No, I, I, I'm going back. What about those people? And friends, the answer is one of the most difficult and frankly, one of the most frightening passages in the Word of God. I'm sure many of you here have struggled over this passage. I know I have. I know many of you have been frightened by this passage. <laughs> I have this week. What he does is he exposes infidelity to the faith. He says, if you don't go on into Christ, if you don't go on, if you just stay here in the ABCs of things that you knew as a Jewish person, and now you don't want to go on as a Jewish believer into Jesus Messiah, if, if you turn back, he says, this is dreadful. It, it's infidelity. And the writer warns, beginning of verse 4 down through verse 8, he warns of the consequences for those who don't go forward in Christ, but instead they go back. He's warning about apostasy. What does apostasy mean? Look at verse 6, to fall away. It doesn't mean just to slip and fall in your sin. Don't, please don't get concerned about that. It doesn't mean to... Go astray. 
That's not what the word apostasy means. The apostasy means to repudiate what you have said you believed and turn away. It means to reject and repudiate and turn away from your profession. That's what it means. What is apostasy? What is this? Well, he identifies it. Verse 4. Look at this. It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. They've tasted of the goodness of the Word of God and of the powers of the age to come. And then have fallen away, repudiated this, to restore them again to repentance. Because they're crucifying the Son of God again to their own harm. They're holding him up for public scandal. This is a difficult passage. It's frightening. Notice what he says. What happens in apostasy. First of all, there's the condition of apostasy. Apostasy, you know what the condition starts as? Incredible blessing. Have these people been blessed? They've been enlightened. Look at it, verse 4. They've been enlightened. They've tasted of the heavenly gift. They've tasted of of the message of the reality of the heavenly gift in Christ. They have shared in the Holy Spirit. They've experienced the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. They've been taught, they've been instructed by Him. They've been impacted by the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the goodness of the Word of God. They've come to understand that this is the Word of God and, and of the powers of the age to come and the glory that's awaiting. They've, they've tasted of this. They've seen a, a foretaste of it in the church. What spiritual blessings yet without spiritual birth. Listen carefully what I'm about to say. These are people who are blessed, but they're not born again. They are convinced, but they're not converted. They have been convinced of the reality of the things of God. They have been even personally blessed by the work of the Lord, but they're not born again. How do we know that? We know that by what they don't do. They don't go on. They don't grow up. They don't move ahead. They don't persevere in their faith. We know that. That's what he's saying is happening. And we know that they're not born again because of what they do. It's the character of what they do. What's the character of apostasy? It's an inexpressible betrayal. Apostasy is not just falling into temptation. Apostasy is not just giving in and sinning. We all do that. Apostasy is not failing of God's expectations and of your own expectations. What is apostasy? It is repudiating Christ. It is, verse 6, they are crucifying Christ again. They're putting him to an open shame. They are repudiating everything they've come to know and experience. John describes them this way. He says, they are people who went out from us, 
but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain they were not all of us. This is not talking about people who leave your church. This is not talking about people who decide to go someplace else. This is talking about people who repudiate Christ. They repudiate the gospel, the teaching of Jesus. And truly frightening is the consequences. Look at, connect something, connect something here. Verse 4, it is impossible. What's that connected to? Look down at verse 6. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance. Draw a line between those. It is impossible to restore them again to, to, to repentance. This is irreparable bondage. They have repudiated Christ. And because they've repudiated Christ, even though they've been enlightened, they've been blessed... They've repudiated Christ. They are blaspheming him. And they're blaspheming the Holy Spirit who has worked in their very life. And because of that, there's no remedy for their sin. No remedy. That is truly frightening. But that is the possibility that someone is blessed but not born again. Convinced but not converted. And they decide, this is not for me. He's not for me. Even though I know there's truth to him, I don't want him. I'm going away. It's impossible to bring them to repentance. You see, if this verse teaches, you can lose your salvation, which I do not believe it teaches. But some people think it does teach this. But if it teaches that you can lose your salvation, it teaches that once it's lost, it can never be regained. It does not teach that. Because the Bible says, Jesus said, I give to you eternal life and you will never perish. I have you in my hand and no one's able to pluck you out of my hand. The Father has me in my, his hand and you in my hand and no one is able to pluck you. You are kept by the power of God to salvation. Ready to be revealed. He that has begun a good work in you will perform it to the day of Jesus Christ. The Bible's clear on that. But friends, it's also clear that it's not just a faith in words. It's a faith that clings to Jesus and grows in Jesus. It's real and living. My time's gone. People want to get in. You want to get out, some of you. <laughs> and I'm sure there's one or two that says, oh, no, go on, Pastor Sam, go on. Thank you. <laughs> May the Lord forgive that sin. <laughs> but you know what? Oh, I have trudged through these verses. I have trudged through these verses concerned about my own soul and when I got to verse 9 thank you Lord for verse 9 amen and he says though we speak in this way yet in your case beloved we feel sure of better things 
things that belong to salvation. You see, there is fruit. What did Jesus say in Matthew 13? The seed is cast. The devil grabs some of the seed. But then there's soil that things just spring up for a while, but the world chokes it. Then there is that which produces no fruit. And then there's that which does produce fruit. What the Lord is saying here is when you see the fruit of salvation in your life, have no fear. Great is His faithfulness. Amen. He holds you. He holds you. Listen, many times my kids, when I was walking them across a parking lot, they tried to let go of my hand and run away. But guess what? I didn't let go of their hand. They weren't going anywhere. Thank God we know who holds our hand. Amen. And we need Jesus. But, oh, friend, don't miss this warning. Today, if you hear his voice, cry out to them, him. My Jesus, I need you. I need you. I need you now. Help me to continue. Help me to persevere. Help me to go forward.